This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra, extra special guest. His name is Michael Spence, and this is a conversation just filled with wonky goodness. He is the winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics from 2001, effectively on information theory about how information impacts market structures. We talk about asymmetries and gaps and really how digital economies are just changing the entire world. Um, Spence has had a number of really fascinating forecasts that have all turned out to be quite prescient. Uh, he's almost blasé about it. He he describes them as all but inevitable. Uh, this is really a, a fascinating conversation. If you're interested at all in information signaling, in how uh, economies develop and grow, uh, about the impact of not just technology, but government institutions and intellectual capital, you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with NYU's Michael Spence. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Michael Spence. He is the 2001 Nobel Prize winner in economics for his work on the dynamics of information flows in markets. He is the former dean of the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He is currently a professor at NYU Stern. He is a senior advisor at General Atlantic, a very large private equity firm, which manages about $35 billion. Michael Spence, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. It's great to be here. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the work you do. Um, your Nobel Prize, I'm going to take what is normally a somewhat esoteric research area and see if I can make it understandable. Right. How people make decisions when critical information is hard to find. Is that a fair oversimplification? Yeah, it's certainly part of it. Yep. So, so tell us about that. What, how did you find your way into that space? And, and what are the dynamics of information flows? Well, so I got, I got interested in this when I was a graduate student. I brought probably a little color commentary. Sure. Uh, by the time I had finished my uh, general exams, which is the first two years of a PhD program, I'd been in school um, up through high school, 13 years in Canada. Um, then I had four years at Princeton. These were all wonderful experiences, and mm -hmm. two years at Oxford. Um, doing well, you were a Rhodes Scholar, right? Rhodes Scholar, yeah, doing mathematics eventually. Uh -huh. And um, and then two years in the PhD program, and I'd had about enough. And right. so <laughs> I, I went to one of my advisors, who's a great friend, Dick Sechthauser at the Kennedy School, and I said, I think I'm going to quit. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm tired of you know, talking to myself and sitting in a library right. and stuff. So um, he said, uh, he said you, the problem is you don't have enough human contact. You should teach. And so he did two things for me. He, he gave me a little bit of his course on social choice theory, uh -huh. which I screwed up royally. That's <laughs> my first outing as a teacher. And the second thing he did is he made me what he called rapporteur of a faculty seminar in the then new new one-year-old Kennedy School. Mm -hmm. It was an extraordinary group of people. You know, it was Francis Bathor and uh, Les Thoreau came down to visit really? from MIT and Ken Arrow, Tom Schelling. Uh, so just, there's a, quite a run of Nobel laureates in that group. Oh, no. no there was, yeah, it was pretty amazing. 
not all of them had been recognized in that capacity then. And so that was fascinating. And my job was to turn what was a kind of general discussion, you know how those go all over the place, mm -hmm. into uh, nine pages that made it look like just brilliant, you know, linear you know, bit exposition. So I did that, and I had a lot of fun doing it. Ken Arrow, to, to, to his dying day, said that that was the the thing he thought was my greatest skill, is <laughs> rapporteuring. Um, in the course of that, Les Thoreau came down and started talking about what he called statistical discrimination. So it, it, I don't want to you know, make this too nerdy, but basically whenever you have... Nerd away. Yeah, okay. When, when you have missing information, then basically you get people classified you know, by what you can see or detect as opposed to what you don't see. Uh, and Les's idea, and that automatically produces discrimination. So what happens in any you know economic or social context is that the the members of a group who are otherwise indistinguishable from each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, in in your world, think of asset classes. Okay, okay. Um, it's a little bit like this. Things get lumped into an asset class because they're supposed to be sort of similar. Right. And it, until the markets get deep informationally, you, you know, you don't see all the differences. So they tend to be averaged, right? Mm -hmm. When you average a bunch of diverse entities that are in one of these, you know, silos that are distinguishable from other silos by what's visible or detectable, then you basically get the people at the upper end of some quality spectrum get treated as the average, uh -huh. and that's not good. And at the lower end, they get treated as the average, and that's great for them. Mm -hmm. So you're discriminating against the high-quality end of the spectrum, and you're favoring the low-quality So, So this has to have huge implications for people looking at, let's say, making investments in either private or public companies. Absolutely. Yeah, So, that, but then it gets complicated, I mean, for sure. Um, so what, So the, the phenomenon that this gives rise to in markets is the one George Akerlof wrote about Although the insurance people have known it for years, it's called adverse selection. Right. And what what happens in that in that context is basically you have what I just described: this quality spectrum that has the unfortunate properties you can't tell the difference uh, between the the entities. Think of them as things for sale and differing in quality. Used cars is the example he used. So what happens in a market like that is that the price reflects the average quality, and the people at the top end of the quality spectrum say. That's not a very good price for me, right? And they take their product out of the market uh -huh. from the top end. And then the average quality falls, and eventually people figure that out, and the price goes down. And then the people at the top end of the remaining spectrum say, that's not a very good price. I'll take mine out, right? So that's, that's the origin of the term adverse selection. People are selecting in and out of the market. And the, it's adverse because the the top end of the quality spectrum leaves first. Let's talk about your uh, book, The Next Convergence, because it's such a fascinating application of, of information flows. Uh, there's a quote in the beginning that I just found absolutely mind-boggling. From 1750 to 1950, the average income of people living in countries that underwent the Industrial Revolution saw their incomes rise 20 to 40 times versus the non-industrialized countries, and this was only 15% of the world's population. Is that about right? That's about right. 20 to 40x. That's amazing. Yeah, so the growth rates weren't breathtaking, you know, probably 
on the neighborhood of 2% in real terms. Mm-hmm. This is on a per capita basis. But if you if you do it for 200 years, you get a fairly big ink. The magic know. of compounding, exactly. For sure. So that that was basically it. Then then, you know the 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 other 85 percent are living in countries that we now call emerging economies. Mm-hmm. Most of them, some of them haven't emerged very much, but right. uh, but that but that's the other group, and they were held back by uh, essentially. Uh, a global economy that wasn't really open and the colonial structure of the governance. So the rest of the book, you basically say, well, 1750 to 1950 was the Industrial Revolution. The next 100 years, I think you referenced 1945 to 2045, Mm -hmm. 60% of the world's population will join the affluent. That's a big, bold number. We're about halfway through that process. How, uh, maybe a little more, how accurate was that forecast, and and how is this actually happening? So I think it's well underway. I mean, I may have been a bit optimistic, but you know, China looks like it's well on the way. It's a high middle income country with a very good chance of being, you know, a, a high income country. Admittedly, at the low end of the spectrum in another ten to fifteen years, India is a bit further behind, but they're you know humming along. You add them t- those two together, and you've got two point. I think it's 7 billion people, which is a significant fraction sure. of the world's that, That's half seven, of your 60%, right? Yeah, that's Just half of my 60%. Uh, you've got you know, the rest of Asia that some of it came earlier, some of it came later, and so on. So it's, it's, I think this convergent process is going to be very hard to stop because people, because the structures are there to enable it and because people have gotten the hang of it that it's actually possible. You discuss in the book that post-World War II, Japan was a very unusual example compared to other so-called developing nations. What, what made Japan so unique, uh, especially over that 1750 to 1950 era? Yeah, so Japan is a kind of hybrid. Um, so most of Asia, by the way, in the, right after World War II, Asia was by far the poorest part of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Worse than Africa. Worse than Africa. Yeah, and the and the economists at the time, you know, when asked development economists, when asked, you know, where was the real trouble going to be, they said Asia. Many of them said Asia huh. because Asia doesn't have natural resource wealth on balance, and Africa is by far the richest country. Minerals, oil, minerals, oil, yeah. diamonds, you know, you name it. Um, and that turned out not to be a good guess because it turns out that the kind of real capital that enables this growth is people provided they're educated and so on and not not just uh you know mineral wealth yeah so so basically i think you know what the situation was japan uh was a hybrid because it had gotten to middle income status and the reason it got there is that in 1868 the meiji restoration Mm -hmm. it abandoned the policy of isolationism so it embraced and trade. Embraced and- trade, embraced openness, and they had started to modernize. Uh-huh. And then, they, of course, World War II was, an, and they were an imperial power, you know. All over um, Asia, right? All over Asia, you know, China, Korea, etc. cetera. Um, so the World War II was a huge setback, but basically they got back on track. So them. over the same period, that, that post-industrial period, pre-war post-industrial period, how come China fared so much worse than Japan? So there, there's two cr- kind of crucial ingredients. 
in in the post-war growth that we've have seen. And by the way, this is growth that we've never seen before. I mean, we're talking about extended periods, like two and a half decades of five, six, seven percent growth, right. even higher in China. Just never happened before. So one of the things I was trying to do in the book is explain how you could do that, right? How could you have a max of two percent, you know, before that, or two and a half, right? How in could real you have, terms. Yeah, in real terms, how could you have advanced countries growing at a max three in real terms, and these people are growing at seven, eight, and nine? Right. And the answer is they're catching up, right? All of that technology that you need to drive growth in the long run, you mm-hmm. know, the the solo insight, uh, was already developed. So it just had to be brought in and adapted. In other words, this isn't one country amongst many that are all emerging at once. When you take an emerging economy and they're surrounded by developed economies, that's an accelerant. Provided they're open. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And provided they're investing at high enough rates. So, so. Well, clearly China is making massive investments. Do you consider them open enough to continue taking full advantage of what the rest of the globe can do for their growth? At the moment, yes, and certainly historically once they decided to open in 1978 under mm-hmm. Deng Xiaoping. Um, now, is it logically possible that they could close themselves off enough to, to put a major dent in their growth? Yes, it's, it's, it's unlikely, I think, but it's possible. You asked about the history of China. So China had a revolution in 1949. The communists took over. Mm-hmm. The communists on, on the positive side probably had the intention of making everybody better off, right? That you can find a lot of governing structures in the developing world where the governing elite, whoever they are and however they got there, are doing something other than trying to make people better off. Right. right? Lots yeah, of corruption, lots especially of corruption. where there's uh, mineral resources or oil. Yep. All that kind of thing. So if they're doing that, nothing good's going to happen. The Chinese weren't doing that, and they did put a hell of a lot of resources, given the 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 low levels of income in the economy, into education. What they didn't do is run a market economy. So for the first 29 years, they basically got nowhere, but they built assets that were useful. And when they changed the, the, gro- the development model, the growth model, uh-huh. to opening up and and using markets, initially, selectively, then it just took off like a rocket. That was the post-Nixon era? Is, that was is... the post-Nixon era. So it was, they date, the Chinese date the reform process from 1978. Let's talk a little bit about job market signaling. We discussed some of that before. You've done a lot of work on this. Tell us about the origins of job market signaling and, and how it's evolved over time. So the origin of it was you know, was that discussion that we had earlier that had to do with informational gaps. Mm-hmm. So the 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 adverse selection problem is basically what happens in markets if you can't close the gaps. And then we talked about brands as a way of closing. What do markets do? They're going to try to close the gaps. That's one of the things that happens. Between buyers and sellers. Between buyers and sellers is the best way to think about it. The second thing is signaling. The things that the 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 sellers can do to convey actually accurate information in the market. Um, uh, the third thing that we do collectively is regulate, right? So financial markets have enormously large gaps uh, in principle. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it isn't a great surprise that every set of financial markets in the world has disclosure requirements, and they're pretty stringent, and the penalties are pretty high for uh, violating it. And 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 when those disclosure requirements are not there or not enforced, then you get bad misbehavior in the markets, so, which you see in the developing world all the time. So there's there's that's interesting you bring that up because it makes me think of. The way we approach regulation in some areas is to prevent a behavior. Say, this behavior we're not going to allow. There are other aspects where we say, well, we're going to let you do what you want, but you have to make these disclosures so buyers know. Most people don't read the fine print. They're not reading the credit card disclosures. They're not reading their brokerage account disclosures. Given that, how does that information make its way into the marketplace? Is the signal still there? If 90% of us don't read the disclosures, maybe it's 98% of us don't read it. Yeah, no, the answer is no, it's not. And then you need, if, if it's important to close that informational gap, then you, then you, and you can't close it, then you have to do something else. So we do all kinds of things. So we assume that uh, there are classes of investors who are not capable of understanding the risk characteristics of certain kind asset classes, mm-hmm. and they're simply precluded. From in, in, you know, meaning if you're not an accredited investor, you're, you're not, not accredited. You can't go into a hedge fund or right. A venture capital don't have fund. assets of a certain size. Right. We assume you can't withstand the kind of risk characteristics of that asset class. So, regulation in that sense has multiple avenues, and they done properly, they tend to be pragmatic mm-hmm. response to to real human behavior as opposed to some kind of theory about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, huh. quite interesting. What what about the impact of technology on both signaling in the job market and and the impact of regulation yeah so this this when i when when the internet was sort of in its early stages meaning a kind of public property let's call it the mid 90s people you know had all kinds of theories about what its impact was going to be and i got asked a lot of questions the the the, the gist of which were is this going to close informational gaps and my answer then is is the same now, but I underestimated something. So my answer was it's not going to eliminate private information, meaning information that I have because it's me, mm-hmm. that you know, you're only going to get if I somehow transmit it to you. Um, but but what the internet does is it gives you so many so access at very low cost to so much information that's correlated with this kind of thing that I actually think it does close informational gaps. And the best example of that, I think, is um, what we see now in fintech. Mm-hmm. You know, so you so in like Ant Financial and, for example, and Alibaba, you have a massive amount of data because they basically they're half the mobile payment system in China. They can use that data to issue credit to little tiny businesses. Uh, there's there's a partially owned subsidiary called MyBank that just won an award for this. Right, using this data to make credit assessments and price and price the the credit appropriately, and uh, and this these people are otherwise blocked away. I mean, they can only borrow from family or friends. A bank can't either assess the the risk. And, and or it's way too costly to assess so, it. So this data and this information effectively it, creates a whole new market. It creates a whole new market. Hmm. I mean, and when we're talking about, I mean, this my bank has 17 million small business customers. Uh, average number of employees, five. No collateral. Nothing. 
They just right? look at their credit history, they, their transaction and, history. Their transaction history, their payments history, you know, and and their online activity. So let's talk a little bit about growth and trade. And I want to start with the project you did uh, for the World Bank. Tell us a little bit about that. It was quite fascinating. Yeah, so they, they um, I kind of stumbled into this because I had not been a specialist in in um, development, growth related to developing economies. And so I, I, around about 2000, I, the early 2000s, I got a call um, from uh, some folks at the World Bank who've become good friends. And they said, would you come and give a lecture on investment and growth at the one of the spring conferences, the Poverty Reduction and Economic Management. And I said, why me? <laughs> and they said, well, you sort of, you know, kind of have a microeconomic focus and pay attention to these things. And so I thought to myself, this is this is signaling or screening. I thought, okay. So here you have- Meaning your, that you're, they saw the Nobel and said, oh, let's have him talk about this. Is that yeah. what you mean by signaling? No, 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 no. It was the decision I made. So I, I made the following decision, Barry. <laughs> I said, I'm going to do this. And there, there's one of two outcomes. Uh, either it'll be a disaster in which I'll have learned something that I shouldn't be, you know, mucking around with the 10,000 people who are the experts in development in the world. Right. Or it'll go okay, and then I'll have learned something else, right? So it was del deliberately a screening device. And it seemed to go okay, and from that came a commission on growth and development. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that commission wasn't to do original research. It was approximately 15 years since the Washington Consensus had been enunciated. Uh, uh, Which was? it's It came out of Washington. Uh, I've temporarily forgotten that. John Williamson wrote it. It's been much maligned and unfairly, to be honest with you. The Washington Consensus is a perfectly sensible uh, assessment of what it takes to kind of grow and develop in a developing what, what growth. What was that assessment? There's, well, there's a list of things. There's about 13 things that are crucial components. Mm -hmm. um, some people interpret it as a kind of, you know, uh, turnkey system. You can't do that. Every country has idiosyncratic sure. characteristics. But the, the thing that gave the Washington Consensus a bad name is it was un taken, especially in Latin America, and stripped down to liberalize, privatize, etc., and uh, and that gave rise to kind of excesses and, and you know not terribly good results. Mm -hmm. um, so we decided this it was a good time. We had a lot of experience that had been accumulated in countries like China and India and others. Brazil had start, had come out of its twenty um, five year funk and looked like it was starting to grow, um, etc. It was a good time to kind of figure out what research, what experience, and so on had taught us about that was useful, and could we kind of summarize it and, and give it back? So that was the exercise. We wrote a 75-page report based on kind of two years of listening to people and uh, and thinking about it, and it was meant to be an up. None of these things are ever kind of you know definitive, right? right? It was an update, right? Now we know this that we didn't know before. In the course of doing that work, we went and looked for countries that had grown for at 7% or more for 25 years or more. Not every year, but on average. Uh, and there's 13 countries. Really? Because that's a giant number, 7%. Well, 7 but you double every decade at 7%. And uh, there's 13 countries uh, that have done that at various points. China's one. Brazil, in the early post-war period, was one. Uh -huh. Korea, they won't be surprised you. Right. The Taiwanese economy. Japan was in that group. 
there were some surprises. Little Botswana. Really? He was a member of that group, yeah. Huh. Uh, so different sizes, different governance structures. It was it was pretty interesting. Were there any consistencies across all uh, 13 of yeah, those countries? Yeah, they're basically all the same growth model, which has come to be called the Asian growth model. So it's it's high levels of investment funded domestically, openness, including especially foreign direct investment, which mm-hmm. is the one of the principal channels for technolo- inbound technology transfer, and leveraging the big global marketplace. If mm-hmm. you try to do this on a standalone basis, doesn't work. it just doesn't work. I mean, you look at the demand in a country with a per capita income of $500. It's kind of food, shelter, energy, and not much else. Right. You know, so everything we know, specialization in the Adam Smith sense, you know, Taking advantage of comparative advantage, none of that works on a standalone basis. So, but, but you know, if even a country the size of China, in the early stages, right. is small relative to the global economy. Small economy meaning. Yeah, small economy, not small number of people, but small economy. So they can, they can grow at very high rates, without really becoming a major presence in the market and starting to turn the prices against themselves. Um, so in the book, you write about China. And yeah. remember, the book was 2002 or 2003, something like that? No, no. The book is 2010 or 11. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's that right. late. You wrote, um, China is 35% of U.S. or EU economy. In 10 to 15 years, it will be the same or bigger. It looks like that's a very prescient forecast. Um, where are we in the process of China passing the EU or the U.S. in terms of their economy not on a per capita basis but just on a gross basis yeah on a gro- i think they're around 75 percent now mm-hmm. on a gross basis maybe a little bit more so we're uh, just a few years away yeah it depends on i mean you know the trade war could put a dent in the kind of speed of the of the trajectory uh and and a, and a natural slowdown is occurring in china too i mean countries we you know where they have per capita incomes in the teens meaning mm-hmm. thousands um just don't grow at 7% anymore. The catch-up effect isn't as powerful. They're right. generating technology. They're becoming like advanced economies. Right. The law and, of big numbers just starts uh, to rear its head yeah, eventually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're, getting, they're, they're, they're becoming part of this, the kind of global system that generates the technology that enables the growth for all of us. So they mature into more of a developed yeah. nation. Yeah. So let's. you mentioned the trade war. Let, let's talk about that. Is... How much of the trade war and tariffs uh, are hurting China? Is this really having a major effect? And what is it doing here in the United States? Um, so in China, it's slowing them down because they still have some dependence on the export sector. Um, and it's slowing everybody down through a somewhat different channel, which is uncertainty. Which you is mean globally? This globally, is having yeah. an impact on... Globally, yeah. So, in other words, corporations are are holding back, holding back on making capex and hiring decisions because yeah. of the uncertainty yeah. around know. how this resolves. Yeah, where where are we supposed to put our supply chains? You know, we is this going to going to go away? Right, right. There's some things that are happening pretty fast. So, for example, China was in the process of you know basically moving the labor intensive process oriented manufacturing assembly, which was the early export growth engine out. And the reason is got nothing to do with the trade war. It's just their incomes are too high to be the competitive place for that. They're going to replace it with a higher yielding. They replace it with a higher yielding thing, and and the activity itself 
to the extent it is not cut off by automation, digital technology, right. goes to Vietnam. Vietnam, Parts Turkey, India, Bangladesh, yeah. Turkey, maybe Turkey, uh, Ethiopia. What about Mexico? Is that a- Mexico uh, is, yeah, is there, although Mexico is a- Moving upscale a little bit? Yeah, it's a middle-income country if you take an average, but mm-hmm. there are pockets. <laughs> right. You know, where, it, where it's It's kind very of, lumpy distribution. It's yeah, not evenly- exactly. Uh, so, so that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where we are. Um, I think probably for your listeners, the most important thing to understand is China would have been clobbered 20 years ago if something like this happened right. because they were dependent on the export sector mm-hmm. for the demand that enabled the growth. Now they have this huge growing middle class with rising incomes right. like like the United States. Um, they can enable a growth with the domestic demand to a much so, greater extent. That's interesting. My, my sense of China versus the way the United States has been approaching tariffs is that they play a much longer game than we do. We think in months and quarters. They seem to think in decades. The response to hit uh, the soybean farmers and the heart of the Trump base seemed very, very calculated and not random at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they just going to wait us out until the next president comes along? Or, or what's their what's their approach from your perspective? Well, they're probably a little puzzled because I think it's hard for them as and, and, and many of us to figure out what, with any precision, uh, the current administration in the United States is really after. It seems mm-hmm. to be a bit of a moving target. But no, I don't think they'll. I don't think they'll just definitively wait it out. They'll see if they can make agreements where it looks like it's sensible from both mutually beneficial mm-hmm. to make an agreement. We have been speaking with Michael Spence. He is a professor of economics at the NYU Stern School of Business. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things information structure related. You can find that at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever your finer podcasts are found. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Michael, thank you so much for doing this. This is really fascinating stuff. I am absolutely intrigued. And and when you talk about, I don't want to get too wonky. No, no, these these listeners love going into the wonky weeds. Um, There's a couple of things, both from the book and some of your other writings, that we didn't get to that I want to discuss. But first, I was mentioning during the break that I thought the book really has has held up very well it there's nothing in it that's outdated what are you thinking about for your next book well on the by the way it takes about a decade to recover from writing a book (laughs) that's my experience about 10 years later yeah you're you're almost ready to start. almost ready to start yeah no i mean on the development side barry i would say the the biggest potential shift is it does come from the digital technology side so you know you have we are either at or very close to the point where the digital technologies, which you know are kind of high fixed, very low variable cost mm-hmm. technology, software, replication, zero marginal cost, etc., basically overtake the labor-intensive ones, right. replace. 
But that undercuts a very important part of the growth model that we saw being used essentially in every country that was really successful. Namely jobs? Yeah, jobs. What are you going to do? What's So you got to sell something, a good or a service, to the global economy. But that part hasn't gone away. The question is, if it's not toys and assembled electronics <laughs> and stuff and shirts and uh, textiles and apparel is the starting point for most of these places, then what is it? And all uh, that stuff has gone robotic now. Is going robotic. You know, so, I mean, it... It doesn't happen overnight, but um, but it's happening pretty fast. I mean, you know, it, so textiles is difficult because the material's soft and the robots have trouble kind of— Right. I mean, we actually go talk to the people who are trying to automate this. They say we're not quite there yet. Um, we, we can't sew the, the, the stitching straight mm-hmm. on on your shirt yet, but it, it's not that far away. Right. So, so there's a real question about— um, this growth model, and one of the things that, that part of the answer is probably going to turn out to be another aspect of digital technology, which is you can create ecosystems, platform-centered ecosystems that enable entrepreneurs to create businesses and employ people and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And in, and it, sorry, and an international version of that would be moving in the direction of a partial substitute. So when we talk about inequality, we used to talk about developed world inequality versus emerging markets or undeveloped world. Now, thanks in part to digital, even within developed worlds, there's inequality that has apparently risen to levels we haven't seen for a few generations. Yep. Uh, how much of this is based on information asymmetries and information gaps, and how much of this is just the nature of capital and a sort of winner-take-all system that seems to have been uh, evolved over the past few decades? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I mm-hmm. mean, I think it's more a combination of globalization and the evolution of technology have, since about the late 70s, has basically reversed relatively benign growth patterns with respect to distribution. So they, the whole thing went started to go south, let's say around 1980. Uh-huh. And, you know, we had big changes in approach. I mean, that was the that was the Reagan-Thatcher era, mm-hmm. right? So we probably had some deregulation and other things that might have contributed to that. But, but basically, you know, you've got uh, something that's, by most people's standards, just gotten out of control. Mm-hmm. And and of course the you know because so income, if you have income rising income inequality for long enough, then it then it's on the wealth side it's self perpetuating. Right. You know, Once it, you get to a critical mass of wealth, you yeah. should theoretically retain it. Yeah. In theory, unless you make big mistakes. Well, that's the old uh, shirt. Uh, what is it? Shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in in three generations. Exactly. So so that raises some really interesting questions. We've always had income inequality and wealth inequality. It seems to be inevitable um, in capitalism. What what you're what I'm getting a sense that you're referring to is when they reach extremes to the point where uh, it threatens the social order. Are, are we remotely close to that anywhere around the world? We look at the EU and the UK and the US. It seems there's some signs of unrest, but nothing like France before their revolution. No, I mean, we're probably not at that point yet, but we're pretty late in the game because I think that the people who have been sideswiped by the way our economies have evolved is a pretty large group, mm-hmm. and they're pretty angry in part because 
it is my conjecture anyway, because we didn't do anything about it. <laughs> right. Well, what right. are we supposed to do about... So let's back well, up a sec, because that's a fascinating yeah. subject. We've had globalization for a long time. There's a reason why my iPhone is more powerful than what took us to the moon 45 years ago right. and costs 30 or $40 a month. It's because of globalization. It's because of automation and technology. It's given us a higher standard of living on average, but there are clearly winners and losers from the decline of unions, the rise of globalization, and the increase of automation. Yeah. Oh, what are we not doing to moderate the negative impacts of that? Well, I mean, you know, probably not using the potential for progressive taxation. Mm -hmm. um, on that, I'm not suggesting that's the whole answer, but you know, but it it probably needs to be part of the answer. You know, there's there's a. I think one of the reasons is coming into focus now is there's a, a bunch of really good research, right. you know, with a long time horizon. Piketty, Saez, you know, Zuckman, Chetty, Raj Chetty at Stanford, right. you know, that are bringing out dimensions of this. And, you know, so it comes in cycles, right? Right. Uh, so in other words, this has been here for a while, but now we really understand it better. We understand it better and understand the history better. And and now are kind of grappling with the responses. So I mean, we haven't had a presidential primary season where people are talking about wealth taxes for a long time. Uh, did yeah. we previously have this? This goes back post uh, depression or around that era. Uh, I don't know I, the history well enough to be able to answer that. Whether we had an actual discussion of wealth, but it wealth is new. Taxes, this this, but it's it, it's new in the post war era. I okay. guess is the way I would say it. Um, and uh, but we're in the early stages of kind of thinking this through. I think the other thing that we learned from a wide range of both developed and developing countries is that is that one of the things you want to so, so there's there's two there's two ways to think about inequality. There's what economists call ex post. That's what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And on that front, I think most people agree with what you just said, which is it's okay. People understand we're not going to all be. You right. know, have the same incomes and stuff, but it can get out of hand. The extremes right. are not okay. And then there's what Americans call equality of opportunity, which is ex ante. That is, do you have a fair shot right. on a level playing field at whatever this distribution out there is? And right? people have been complaining that's been what's been contracting. They are, and and it's connected. You know, if if the income inequality gets sufficiently extreme then the lower end of the spectrum doesn't have the resources to invest in getting to that playing field. Right. Uh, Which is probably why this whole Ivy League, um, right. you know, pay extra money to get your kids in, has has resonated so much and outraged people so much. Yeah. Uh, have they been under illusion that there's a equality of opportunity? Or was there genuinely equality of opportunity for, for most of our history? No, I, I mean... Relatively speaking, I think yes, mm -hmm. uh, but not perfect equality of, of opportunity. Course. That's unachievable. Uh, the, you know, the the this um, gosh, we've got to get into USC or Harvard or whatever Stanford puzzles me. I mean, I've always thought you know, I, I grew up in Canada. Canada is more like other countries in that there's a most of the higher educational institutions are publicly, largely publicly funded. Right. And, you know, and there's a few of them. And, you know, it really matters if you get into the right ones. In America, 
we've got hundreds. We've got public and private institutions. We've got all kinds of really top-flight colleges. Right. I mean, a lot of your friends and mine went to these colleges and whatnot. I went to a state school here in New York. I, I went, went to SUNY Stony Brook, yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't quite understand what the kind of, you know, where, where this, you know, self-imposed pressure to get into these, you know, elite institutions comes from because— my sense is a kid going to any one of a huge range of institutions mm -hmm. has a pretty good running shot at a pretty well, let attractive me, future. Let me push back at you. Yeah. You went to Princeton. I did. You went to Oxford. You went to Harvard. There's not a slouch in that. You taught, taught at Stanford, teach at NYU. Yeah. You've been affiliated with fairly elite institutions. Are you suggesting that you could go to a, I don't want to say a lower tier school, but a next tier school? and still have the same sorts of opportunities that you would get at the best of the best of the best? Is is yeah. is that the concern from so many people? The snowplow parents want to remove every obstacle to their kids' success? I think what, let me, I'm going to guess what they're thinking. So one of the benefits you get from going to these schools is is the education and the signal. The other is the network. Of course. Okay. And so if you believe the network is crucial, then and that that's the main thing then then i can start to understand so you know the the princeton network in new york or the yale network in new york and washington maybe you know you're desperate somehow to make sure your kid is part, right. part of that and the opportunities that 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 opens up that that's the part that that i think is um perhaps real but it's also worrying right mm -hmm. I mean, you don't want to think that uh, if you're out of any of those networks or all of them, that the meritocracy has failed to a point where, right. you know, you don't have access to the top government jobs or whatever. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that's true and that their parents are right, then I think we have to start worrying about about this dimension of equality of opportunity. So so. On that note, let me ask you some questions I didn't get to that I think are, are relevant. Sure. One of the quotes in, in the book, um, and I don't want to mangle this, adversity is, a su is surprisingly awesome in the birthplace of successful change. What, what is it about adversity that leads to change? And you also talk about the um, change in dynamics during a crisis where the entrenched interests lose a lot of their hold on, on power. Yeah, so it's not a sure thing that a crisis produces good results, mm -hmm. but it does create at least an opportunity because it, it essentially weakens the vested interest power to maintain the status quo. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why you get routine statements like never waste a crisis, sure. you know, et cetera. Um, and there are examples. I mean, you know, one of the members of that commission was a Turkish citizen, always well, at the World Bank and, and now elsewhere, you know, was finance minister when Turkey had a crisis and was able to put through some reforms that, you know, arguably just you couldn't do in, quote, normal, normal times. times. Yeah. Well, a lot of the post-Depression, Great Crash era reforms, we've never seen anything like before or since right. in the United States. One, one of my favorite comparisons in the book Singapore versus Cuba. Here are two countries relatively the same size, two island nations, similar populations, enormous different in enormous differences in economic outcomes. What what explains those differences? 
Well, it's basically the choice of the. It's the development strategy that mm-hmm. uh, that explains the difference. So, um, I mean, there's a kind of literature, and you know that you know goes back and forth between policies and institutions uh-huh. in the development literature. And I think the sensible sort of assessment of that is institutions do matter, but but policies matter as well. But Singapore basically was relatively autocratic, but they were pretty clever. Uh, In what ways? Well, for example, you know, they figured out early on, first of all, they have a a multi-ethnic structure. Uh So they have Malays and Chinese and and Indians. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they, they... Probably Lee Kuan Yew figured out that if those people got at each other's throats, that you know would kind of they'd rip Problem. the place apart. Right. So they set out to get to make the growth patterns inclusive, really from the get go. And anybody who was uh, not on board in that was simply marginalized, you right. know, kicked out. Um, and they and they figured the most important part of that was housing. Really, so they went after housing. Um, so housing. The the two critical elements were housing and education. So the mm-hmm. education is stunningly good um, over a long period of time, and housing is subsidized. So you don't really ever have a problem with, you know, where you're going to live and whether it's affordable and stuff like that. Huh. And then they left things like saving for your retirement up more or less up to you. So there's not a lot of pension, big liabilities and pension funds, but, right. they, but that crucial piece they got right. They, they did one other thing, which is I asked a— uh, a senior person who was a partner of Lee Kuan Yew in the early days of development, I said, well, it's the secret to success and in Singapore. And he said, well, there were two things. He was a little, this is a little tongue-in-cheek because there were a lot of things, but he said there were two things. One, we were really harsh on corruption. We basically stamped it out. Right. Uh, so we we took care of that problem. So we, rule of law really matters. Yeah, rule of law in the sense of, you know, that part that has to do with corruption. You know, a civil servant is... It's just got to be clean, mm-hmm. um, and when and when there was a violation of that, we really stamped hard. And I, so I said, I understand that part. And um, and they said the second part was luck. Really? Yeah. They acknowledged that. Yeah. And so I said, well, What do you mean? And he said, Well, uh, he said this this isn't really luck. This is sort of pragmatic opportunism. Mm-hmm. You know responding to things that you can't anticipate in advance. So which which sometimes is indistinguishable from luck. It was um, indistinguishable from luck. In this case what it was was the in the post-war period and during the Cold War um a system that, that came to be called the multi-fiber agreement was set up and what it was was an attempt to make sure that the textiles and apparel industry globally was spread out across a bunch of countries. Uh-huh. And be- because they wanted those countries to thrive and stay on, quote, our side. Yeah. Um, and so there were quotas, basically. And an early major center of textile uh, manufacture was Hong Kong. And they hit the quota. And the entrepreneurs in Hong Kong, who are no slouches, right. started looking around the world. Hey, let's went, go over there. Yeah. And Singapore went, we'll, do, we'll, we'll, we'll volunteer. Do, we'll do that. Right. Um, that's what he meant by luck. You know, so... I mean, you don't plan to have a multi-fiber agreement where, you know, the major player hits the quota and you're just about ready to take it on. But but it's— But they're really not a big textile not manufacturer anymore. anymore. They very quickly morph towards technology and, and other industry. Yeah. So you don't see this much in Hong Kong. You don't see it much in Singapore. You know, it, the, the handoff process is interesting. So when 
It went to Korea. Uh-huh. Uh and to some extent to Taiwan. And then their their incomes rose to the point and they had to move again, move to China. Some of it was in Indonesia um for a while, Vietnam for right. sure. Um now China's handing it off. Again, I mean this passing the baton is a natural part of the dynamics. I, I have a friend who used to be located in San Diego and ended up in Vietnam. And he said, Vietnam is today the Wild West of capitalism, the just the purest expression of uh, let's try an idea and see where it goes. What do you see as Vietnam's future in terms of future convergence? I, You know, they haven't quite hit the 7% club, Mark, but um, but... It's basically they're they're part of the process. They're on the way. I mm-hmm. mean, if you wanted to be skeptical, what you would say? Well, the tensions in the South China Sea area are sufficiently high. They'll get in a fight with China, and something bad will happen, or something like that. But on, on at least on the economic grounds, I don't see any reason why uh, we, you know Vietnam won't be hmm. continue to become more and more prosperous. So you recently wrote about three megatrends driving structural shifts, uh, digital transformation, which we talked about, growing EM purchasing power, mm-hmm. and then rising nationalism and popularism. How are these three all colliding? So I think they're connected with each other. So you have – so the digital, I think we understand. it. It's, a, it's not one thing. It's many things. So it has um, – the potential to generate benign and highly inclusive growth patterns, mm-hmm. but it but it will give rise to difficult transitions as people retrain to do s- d- different things. So that that's kind of coming into focus, um, and and we're just going to have to sort of amplify the benign part and and deal as best we can <clears throat> with the other part. Second, the rise of these emerging economies means they're powerful which mm-hmm. means that the governance structure of the global economy, which for many, many years was essentially the G7. Right. In terms of priorities, this isn't going to work anymore. Now it's closer to G20, right? And it's G20, and the G20 is more heterogene- heterogeneous, and harder. it's harder for them to kind of reach conclusions that, you know, aren't just milk toast mm-hmm. um, and stuff. And so we're get, we have a kind of the part of the consequence of the rise of the emerging economies and Asia is a kind of set of centrifugal forces with respect to governance and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then it, you know, this partly economic, partly social phenomenon that I think people are seriously studying, but I don't think it's perfectly understood, which is people are really aren't comfortable living in a world where the, where the unit is designed, is called the global economy, right? right? They just aren't. And some of it's kind of they get sideswiped into economic terms, and some of it is culture. You know, I mean, we're not. It's also history for yeah. mo- all of human history except the last half century. Right. It right. was always local. Yeah. Maybe it was regional at most. Regional at most. So, so you're getting. So you've got. So you're getting a, a, a really powerful reaction again, right. against the kind of post-war kind of trends. And if it's strong enough, then it'll sort of dismantle. It's including some things that we don't want to dismantle that come from the benefits of an open global economy and specialization and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, nobody knows where that's going to take us, but this is, this is 
this is a world I would say that has more centrifugal forces and more tensions than than I can remember for a long time. There's a quote in in the book that I was fascinated by, um, and I want to get your thoughts on it. Sustainable wealth creation is ultimately built on people, human capital and knowledge, on continuous structural change in the economy, and on systems of economic and political organization that permit the productive deployment of those assets. Now, when I read that today, that seems pretty obvious, pretty self-evident. I get the sense when you wrote that, that it wasn't quite as obvious. Um, what What's your key takeaway? Why is it human capital and not natural resources or oil or things that we used to think of as, as so important to the economy or at least to the local wealth creation? Yeah, so you, you, one doesn't want to overstate these things. So if you take an economy that's rich in human capital and take away its energy, it's not going to do very well, sure. right? So we're talking about complementary inputs, and probably that and, and statements like it are a bit of an overstatement. What I was doing, it was trying to counter you know, this notion that you know, there's some source of wealth that's really important, of comparable importance to the kind of knowledge and technology base. So let me, let me tell you the way I used to think about that myself. And I sometimes do it in class. I say, so I'll give you a choice that, you know, is completely hypothetical. You have an economy. It's doing very well. It's quite advanced. And choice one is you destroy essentially all the physical assets or a substantial fraction of them. Mm -hmm. But everything that's in people's heads or in the libraries or in the scientific community or a huge range of stuff. All the traffic engineers still know how to run traffic lights right. and stuff like that. That's one. And the two is you, everybody gets amnesia and you lose all that. Right. And, and then I say, which one would you take? And the students always take destroy the physical assets. And they're right. Mm -hmm. they're, it's hard. Because you can always rebuild that. You can rebuild that. And the other thing is centuries of accumulated knowledge and wisdom. So what do we think of certain countries, and we've seen this in uh, Iran is a good example, where they throw out half of their intellectual class. They throw out around the time of the revolution. They throw out all the educated professors and the doctors and the lawyers. And does does that set them back decades? It takes that long to recover? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, especially if, you know, it's an environment where it's, it's hard to get people to come back. Mm -hmm. Uh I mean, some of these developing countries, you know, they export people in the early stages to go get an education, and then they and people they don't return. <laughs> then and for a while they don't return, and then if you get lucky and once you're further down the road, the opportunities start to to come, and then they start to come back because the opportunities are there. That's China today. They used to send people here to get educated. They wouldn't go home. Now a big now, chunk seems to be they want to go back to Shenzhen. Or that's Shanghai. where the opportunity lies. Yeah. So. That's, I mean, that's a tough one to multi-year thing to navigate through, mm -hmm. but that's, that's an example of that. Yeah, I mean, Europe, you know, coming into World War II, exported an awful lot of talent that was mm -hmm. a pretty important part of the, the advancement of the American. Uh, oh, really? Sure. So, I mean— Well, you look at our nuclear program nuclear came from Germany, effectively. Scientists, right? you know, mm -hmm. engineering talent, Einstein— Von Neumann and Morgenstern, game mm -hmm. theory. I mean, it goes on and on. Um, so, yeah, it's not a good idea to export talent, and it's not a good idea to underinvest in things that keep, you know, that kind of person around. So mm -hmm. I live in Italy part of the time. 
Um, where, where in Italy? Milan. Okay. Milan, pretty well put together city. Sure. Um, and but but you're but a general problem in Europe, and they're falling behind in this. But especially in places like Italy, is that we don't invest enough to keep the top, you know, biomedical scientists and mm-hmm. whatnot. It's not that I mean they want to stay, right? But you got to have the the research funding. You have to have the programs and stuff, or they're going to, you know, these are the most mobile people in the world. Sure. You know, they're going to end up in the United States and Britain or something like that. So, is it? It's not just for career oppor- for money opportunities. It's for research opportunities. It's the research and, opportunities and it's getting the work that. that you love to do done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so the top talent ends up leaving. Is that? strictly a problem in Europe or where else do we see that problem coming up? Well, I mean, no, it's not, you know, confined to Europe. I I mean, I think Europe has relative to the income levels, a kind of problem in that they're falling behind, especially in the digital area. Hmm. I mean, when you think about it, the the really influential entities in this world, a subset of them are the mega platforms. Right. They're all in the United States and China. Mega platforms like Alibaba or Facebook or Google or go down the list. Yeah, Amazon or mm-hmm. whatever, yeah. And that's what's attracting all the intellectual capital. Well, it's certainly the kind of epicenter of a lot of you know applied innovation. So artificial intelligence in its modern form, mm-hmm. which is a highly data-intensive activity, tends to occur around lots of data, mm-hmm. cloud computing power, sure, and uh, an ability to attract talent. I mean, if, if if you and I were talking ten years ago, and 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 I said to you, what what's what are the odds that this, the autonomous vehicle, you know, business is going to be driven forward by you know Google, you would have said, are you crazy? But you know, a lot of that technology is coming out of Baidu and Google and etc. It, it's data and engineering skills. It's data engineering skills and computing and power. Yeah. Quite interesting. Before I get to my favorite questions, I ask all my guests. Yep. I have to ask one question because uh, I've had several previous uh, Nobel Prize winners, and everybody seems to have a charming little story about that phone call yeah. they get. And and we're in that time of year right now. What what was your experience like? I never got the call. So never got a phone call. <clears throat> no, no, they tried, <laughs> but they phoned my home in California, and uh, we had taken a little trip to Hawaii. Right. So what happened was they couldn't get through and they can't wait forever. So then uh, <laughs> some minutes later, they post this on uh, a website. Right. And I had a, I had a, a friend, actually more, more than one, who uh, A, was up in the morning. This is probably on the West Coast. Five, right. 4.30 or 5 mm-hmm. uh, in the morning. So he saw it flash up on the screen and knew where I was. So the phone call I got was from a friend of mine. Right. Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. And how do you know no one's really pulling your leg? Or by that point, it's on the news and, and you can it's, see it. By that point, it's starting to get to be the news. So you can be – I was not expecting it. I mean, I was completely – Really? Yeah. Well, because it's not a Lifetime Achievement Award. But, you know, I had been in academic administration up until 1999 for 15 years. Right. You know, not kind of – Toiling away, right. yeah, and whatnot. So I thought, well, I'm, that was a choice I made. I don't regret it, but I'm not going down that road anymore. So that came right out of the blue for me. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. So let me jump to my favorite questions, our, our speed round. This is what I ask all of my guests. Sure. Sometimes it's revealing. Um, 
We'll start out easy. What was the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model? Uh, so it was a Chevy Nova, mm-hmm. and I think the uh, it was yellow. Mm-hmm. My parents bought it for me, and I don't remember the exact year, but it's got to be 1961 or two. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're collectible now also. Yep. What's the most important thing people don't know about Michael Spence? Gee, I don't know. Not much, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think of anything that uh, I've, I've been. Some people are, you know, people don't know that they're about a secret hobby or something. You're you're an open book. Um, I'm pretty open book. I mean, there's probably lots of things that people don't know. Maybe I wanted to be a professional hockey player and stuff like that. But Well, that's, you're but, from Canada. You yeah. already said that, so we just assume that's yeah, the case. Yeah, we just In America, assume it. That's right. Right. That's, <laughs> tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your career and guided you early on. Well, a lot, there were a lot of them. You know, I mean, I, I went to a school. It's like the lab school at Chicago mm-hmm. in Toronto, attached to the University of Toronto. We had a very uh, charismatic and influential coach coached us in football and hockey and and other things just a guy who made a big difference in our lives the values and the kind mm-hmm. of way we went about doing things um and I, and I've been blessed with really wonderful teachers but I think you know vis-a-vis what I finally became you know an economist I would say my thesis advisors which were Dick Zeckhauser, Ken Arrow and Tom Schelling mm-hmm. were just enormously help they're not only influential they were supportive I mean right. You know, so I can imagine thesis advisors telling a young person who was sort of mucking around with something that didn't sound like what other people were doing. You uh-huh. know, probably you should do that later. You know, that's a bit risky. Don't do that for your PhD. They never said that to me. They said, Go well, ahead. was it risky what you were doing? Well, it could have turned out to be nothing. So yeah. I guess in that sense, yes. But at that point, I was prepared to quit. Uh, oh, really? So, yeah. Well, to me, getting a PhD and going into academic life was an experiment, not a decision that I was going to stick with, you know, through thick and thin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it turned out to be an experiment with a great outcome from my point of view. But And, and Ken Arrow eventually <clears throat> uh, himself wins the Nobel Prize in economics. Well, he was well. Well, well before me. He was one of the early ones. Mm-hmm. The, the, one, the one that was surprised, I don't know if Dick Zackhauser will receive a Nobel Prize. Uh, he's very, very smart. But Tom Schelling came after me. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was, was one of your advisors? Who was one of my advisors. So that was a bit odd. <laughs> that, that's interesting. Um, let's talk about economics and, and, and economists in general. Who influenced the way you think about information theory? Same group of people. Same guys. Yeah, yep. same guys. I mean, I would say I mentioned Lester Thoreau, but Dick mm-hmm. Seckhauser for sure. I wrote things with him. Tom Schelling because he had, um, how do I say it, a really creative mind. And a different way of thinking. So Schelling, as you know, was um, responsible for a kind of branch of applied game theory in which, you know, that was really important in the Cold War, in nuclear mm-hmm. deterrence. It Very unconventional, kind of not, not completely formal. I, and I spent a lot of time with him. He, uh, that was a very big influence for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books? What What do you like to read when you're not writing your own books? Well, sometimes I just read for relaxation. I started to like, you know, my kids. Some of the kids' books are kind of fun. Uh, you know, these sort of sagas. Like, Give us an example. Uh, well, there's a book, a series of books. You know, the last one is apparently coming out in the spring. 
uh, written by S.D. Smith called Green Ember. Mm-hmm. It's about rabbits. Okay. <laughs> it's, every once in a while, there's a saga about rabbits that comes out. And so they're kind of fun. Green when, Ember. Green Ember, yeah. My, um, one of my favorite books when I was growing up was The Agony and the Ecstasy. It was, mm-hmm. It's a historical novel um, about the life of uh, Michelangelo. Uh-huh. I just found that A, fascinating, and B, inspiring. And I've, I've had a lifelong kind of fascination with the Renaissance. Right. Mainly because so many things blossomed at exactly the same time. You know, art, architecture, sculpture, finance, banking. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just this explosion of innovation uh, around that Irving time. Stone. Irving Stone, that's right. right. So in The Next Convergence, you reference that era. You say... Previous to 1750, there was a long period where not a lot happened. Right. So, I mean, it's almost in passing you reference. Um, the book that I've uh, found intriguing about that was, I don't know if you're familiar with it, A World Lit Only by Fire. Explains okay. for 1,500 years, other than the windmill, nothing was invented. It was just a, a dead period, at least in um, Western civilization, China and parts of um, the right. Muslim Turkestan area were progressing. Yep. But the Western world, no forward progress. That's right. And to the extent, the only modification of that is that there was probably in the latter part of that period some scientific progress that didn't translate into technology and, and economic outcomes mm-hmm. um, directly, right? Only with a lag. Uh, but that that's basically right. It, yeah. It's amazing. Any other books you want to mention? Nope, that's it. Okay. Um, here's a t- uh, always an interesting question. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. It's hard to choose. It's a very, <laughs> <laughs> very long list. I mean... <clears throat> um, we we often find that failure can be more instructive than success, which is why I asked the question. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, when you're doing research, you know, there, there's a lot of, they're not big, you know, kind of eye-catching failures, but there's a lot of dead ends. Mm-hmm. And you do learn from those. So that, I mean, in the, in a sense, when I kind of aggregate all those up, mm-hmm. those are probably the most influential ones. In Silicon Valley, where I lived for quite a long time, I, I learned over time that A, failure is something that uh, is important, and B, you know, a culture that penalizes it will kill entrepreneurship and innovation. And third, I learned that the venture capitalists like entrepreneurs that had a failure, provided it was the right kind of failure. So it's funny you bring that up. I've spoken to colleagues in Europe and elsewhere, and I've heard multiple times when we've discussed the difference between the United States and Europe, they've said the United States is the country that not only doesn't penalize failure, but practically rewards it. And that's very different than Europe. Yes, that's correct. And, and, a, and a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, it's really, I mean, it's a little fuzzy, but it's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's pretty deeply embedded in our culture. Hmm. Uh, and it makes it, it makes us, I think, more dynamic. Uh, I, I totally agree. So what do you do for fun? Well, it, it, when you get older, it sort of changes. So um, <laughs> I grew up playing sports, you uh-huh. know. Uh, hockey. Hockey in particular. Um, that's that's the reason I ended up at Princeton to play it? hockey. Yeah, right. They well, they made a mistake, but <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> I think they, they're okay with that decision. They they were okay with it. With it. Yeah, but, but anyway, so I'm, just, I'm you always, mean made a mistake because you turned out not to be a great hockey player? Well, there were a bunch of us, you know. So I think they thought they were going to have a great hockey team, but we weren't quite as good as they'd hoped for. We were, we were the Saturday night entertainment. Uh, mm-hmm. But but the joke about us was we could we we routinely. Um, snatched uh, defeat from the jaws of victory okay. <laughs> and uh but so we were fun to watch <clears throat> no, but no hockey anymore no i played it for a while and then you know when the kids skated you know and uh for a while but at some point it's uh i don't like the way the professional game has gone you know when we when i started playing hockey this is not necessarily a good thing we didn't wear helmets, and then we wore these hel- you know, small helmets just right. to protect you. And we were pretty careful about where our sticks went and what right. we did. Um, now these guys are dressed up like you know warriors and, uh, and go to war and go to war. And I just, I, I like the international games, bigger rink, you mm-hmm. know, more premium on you know skating of the type that you saw with Bobby Orr and Wayne Rain, Wayne Gretzky. I mean, it's just a prettier game. The um, um it's funny you mentioned that because I, uh, there, there's an and I think it's an information issue. Every time we add a safety device to cars, the yeah. ho- the accident rate doesn't go down because people think, oh, I have an airbag and a crumple zone and ABS and a three-point safety belt. I could drive faster. Yeah. And so we end up with safer cars but <coughs> no decrease in automobile uh, deaths at all. Yeah. That's a general principle. I mean, it's sort of like Malthus, right? Mm-hmm. Malthus said, every time we, you know, our incomes go up or productivity goes up, we'll have more people to use it all up. And we, <laughs> no net benefit. No net benefit. He, he yeah. didn't adjust for inflation. That was his, uh, his big problem. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, these information gaps and, and structures and markets. What are you most optimistic about regarding uh, information gaps and asymmetries? And what are you most pessimistic about these days? Basically, your work and, and how it applies. So I think on the optimistic side, I think, you know, properly deployed that this digital technology does close gaps in a sort of startlingly important and inclusive way. So it's a huge opportunity, and it mm. seems to be happening. I mean, this digital divide sort of semi-vanished. Uh, the the mobile internet, the mobile phone and mobile internet is kind of taken over. Right. The world leapfrogging, uh, <laughs> leapfrogging part, right? everything. I mean, yeah. it just looks like uh, it's a it, it just a huge winner. Mm-hmm. Um, on but on the same score, I mean, there are these informational gaps, and and powerful tools like these can, can be used to exploit the vulnerable as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got more ways to cheat, you know, sort of grandmothers out of their savings right. than you used to. You used to have to actually go to the front door and and knock. So, so there's a like most things, there's a kind of flip side to all these coins. But but I think that's not an impossible problem to to deal with. And uh, if a recent college grad came up to you and said they were interested in a career in either academia or economics, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I'd, I mean, I'd say try it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean. I think that I mean, people are very different from each other, so you, and you just don't know. So you got to experiment. I would experiment and without kind of predetermining what the outcome is. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
the the other advice that I tend to give, and it's not necessarily what everybody else would give, which is, I think planning one's career beyond a certain point is not really a good idea. Mm-hmm. I think a certain amount of, you know, following one's nose, <laughs> you know, going to the next thing that's really interesting. Because right. I think the most important thing people do, happy people, are not, you know, not achieving some goal, but enjoying the process of getting there, doing something they love mm-hmm. every morning. You know, to me, that's, uh, you know, your family life and and not a career so much as um, a vocation, right? It makes a lot of sense. Yep. And final question, what do you know about the world of economics and information theory today that you wish you knew 40 or so years ago? Well, I wished I knew on 40, 40 years ago what, what the, the coming digital revolution. I think that's the thing I would have um, I would have liked to seen a snapshot of not for two reasons. One, it it'd be just be fun to, and interesting to know this is coming and to kind of get ready for it. Um, but the other, but the other is um, maybe even accelerate it. But the other one is that it it brings into relief some things. That, let me put it this way, Barry. Economic theory always involves simplification, mm-hmm. right? And so what, what you do in, in good economic theory is you sort of throw out a bunch of stuff and focus on the things that are important. What, what, what happens in the course of that is that there are sort of Im- embedded implicit parameters that are never made explicit. Mm-hmm. You know, things like transaction costs and whatnot that don't change very much. And then every once in a while something comes along and changes them. And then the models aren't okay because the parameters aren't visible, right? Right. I think that's what's happening to us now. You know, we have network structures in economies that are only barely starting to be modeled in the sense that, you, you know, you capture the essence of the way the economy functions. We're still ignorant about these changes. We're, yeah, we're mostly. Mostly, we're in the process of trying to, you know, build build the conceptual structures that allow us to think carefully about mm-hmm. these things. Quite, quite fascinating. Yep. Uh, thank you, Michael, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Michael Spence. He is a professor of economics at NYU Stern School of Business and senior advisor at General Atlantic Partners, a giant private equity firm. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of our previous 300 or so such conversations we've had uh, over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Go to Apple iTunes and give us a review. Uh, Be sure and check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Cowan O'Brien is our audio engineer. Michael Boyle is our booker slash producer. Uh, Atika Valbron is our project director. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. 